0: Welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. It's good to see all of you this morning as we gather here in the patty, and for those of you at home, we are continuing to worship the Lord as we get better and better news each week regarding COVID. To keep keep up to date with us each week as we look to see what our next steps are. But yes, do register for Good Friday. Register for Easter as well as we gather out in the patio. We're going to take a look at this text as we continue in this series of living in the realities of eternity. And Luke 16 is... uh famous passage, and we're going to take a look at what the Lord might have to say to us. Now, one of the main ways that Jesus taught was in parables. They're short and memorable stories that convey truths about God, about ourselves, and about how we are to live under his rule and reign until he returns. And so what we see in Luke 15, this is a chapter prior, is that it begins with religious leaders mingling with the crowd where Jesus has been teaching. And what happens is that these religious leaders, Pharisees and others, they start criticizing Jesus over the fact that he spends time with sinners. Okay, That was their big problem. Okay, And Jesus responds by launching into a number of parables. We have preceding this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we have the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the shrewd manager that all precedes um, this parable we're going to talk about today. And then when Jesus gets to this parable we're going to talk about today in verse 14, what happens is Luke says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now a better translation of the word ridicule, I think, would be sneered at him. They, they were sneering at Jesus because he was loving people that they didn't think deserved to be told could be close to God. Sinners like us. Outsiders, outcasts, people who weren't perfect. They, they didn't go to church enough. They weren't churchy enough. They didn't maybe uh, show show enough religiosity in their life. And so they sneered at Jesus, what they heard him say and what they saw him do. Just this morning as I was praying and thinking through even part of this text, the thing that came through so strongly is this. Sneering is siding with Satan's strategy. I just made that up. Isn't that good? Sneering is siding with Satan's strategy. Sneering is this internal disdain for the things of God. The disdain for seeing Jesus love people who were considered outsiders. A sneering, and particularly for these Pharisees who the text makes very clear were very wealthy and greedy, sneering that God would show love for the poor. They sneered at him, verse 14 says. It's a disdain for God's people and God's ways, and each of us need to check our hearts. Lord, is there any sneering in me? Is there any disdain in me for things that are of you? Or, do I have on my heart, God, the things that are on your heart? Do I see people the way that you see people when I walk by people who are homeless? Do I see them the way that you see them as beloved people made in the image of God? How do we see people? How do we treat them? Do we have a disdain, a sneering in our hearts? That's this little side bonus for you, okay? Now, but I want to show you, though, this disdain, this sneering from these religious leaders sets the stage for Jesus' peril about Lazarus and the rich man. And so we want to remember the primary context for this story today was to confront the dangers of greed and indifference. Don't forget that. That's the primary context, okay? Jesus is directly attacking assumptions about who is close to God and who is far from God. And maybe you even come to Dan, and say, well, I must be far from God. My life doesn't look like uh, uh, other people I see on TV. My life doesn't look like the, the proper kind of Christian or religious person I've grown up with. Well, get ready because Jesus overturns all of our assumptions about who is far from God, who is close to God. And we're going to see that he uses this parable to teach us about the heart of God and our eternal destinies. So first of all, we see Jesus, he's warning listeners, not only 2,000 years ago, but for us today, to watch out for settling for temporary pleasures, that to the humble and weak, eternal treasures are being offered, but to the arrogant and indifferent, condemnation is to come. It's a warning for anything in us that refuses the things of God. You know, I'm reminded of a big picture in John 3:17, The gospel writer John, he teaches us that we serve a gracious God that sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save it. I hope you hear the voice of God inviting you to say yes to him, reminding you of his grace, reminding you of his love, that Jesus came not to condemn it, but to save it. Hope you hear that heart today. And that the final vision of the redeemed of God in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 is that a great multitude that no one could count who would be receiving the eternal life promised in Jesus. That's my faith. That we're going to encounter a gracious, loving, and yet just God at the end of our lives. But I believe we're going to see many that, that the scripture says a great multitude that no one could count. It's a beautiful vision. And we get the opportunity in our lives, while still on earth, to give a glimpse of this future life of God. How? As we teach and live the ways of Jesus. And particularly for this parable, what he's focusing on, it's feeding hungry people, healing sick people, standing up for the weak, building a homework house for kids who need homework help so that they might come to know Jesus. Jesus. You get the picture? This is what Jesus is getting at. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going, I just did an introduction. I'm going to go verse by verse through this section, giving some highlights. I'm going to make three observations. There's more than three. There could be 20 or 30, but I'm going to give you three observations. And I'm going to wrap it up with some application for us today. First of all, take a look at verse 19. The rich man is described in verse 19 as clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple, you may know, is a color of royalty. It's a color of extravagance. And and the fine linen likely was referring to his undergarments. Yes, you heard me right. He was so rich that even his underwear gets mentioned in the Bible. You can quote Pastor Tim on that. Verse 20, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, a gate implies that this rich man owns a large estate. Now, Lazarus, the name is an abbreviated form of Eleazar. And that means, literally, God helps. So, Lazarus, as we'll see in the rest of the story, he is described in verses 20 and 21. Here's a few highlights. That he was covered with sores. He had physical ailments. You know anyone suffering physically? Lazarus had that. He longed to eat what fell from the table. He was hungry. He had food insecurity. Right now, there are 12 million children in the United States who live with food insecurity today. They're not sure if they're going to have food for their next meal. That's why we go to Martha Henry's food pantry every week. Those of us who are contributing and we're serving and we're helping, right? 12 million children right now in the United States, food insecurity. You know what the Bible says? God cares. God cares. Lazarus is also described that he, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now I'm going to pause here. Anyone know someone in the last 12 months who has bought a pandemic puppy? Come on. Do you know anyone who's bought a pandemic puppy? How come no one's raising their hands? Who here knows someone who bought a pandemic puppy? Yeah, I know you guys know people. Who, so raise, Yeah, okay. Anyways, you pretty much all do. The dogs that Jesus is describing in this text, licking the sores of Lazarus, these are not cute pandemic puppies, (laughs) stray, wild dogs. I mean, this is a description in Jewish thought of the lowest of the low of the low is Lazarus. He is at the bottom of the ladder. And the religious leaders so far listening to the story are saying like, amen, that's where he belongs, right? Right? Jesus is making a very insightful approach of sharing the realities of who's close from God and who is far from God. Now, Lazarus, physically, socially, financially, spiritually, at the lowest rung of society, absolute degradation. And then in verse 22, it gets worse. The poor man died. He doesn't get better. This is bad news, Jesus. The poor man died, but he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Again, remember, Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is actually a rabbi. He's teaching a Jewish audience. He's teaching Jewish ideas within what they expected. And so they knew there was something called Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, Abraham's chest. And in Jewish thought, that faithful followers of God, when they died, they would be received by Abraham to be at his side at a great messianic feast. So imagine like the best meal ever, okay? And to be sitting next to the host, you would be in his bosom, at his side. They would actually be reclining and they would be uh, resting on each other as they shared this meal in Middle Eastern fashion. In this story, who gets the seat of honor? Lazarus. That's the great reversal already because they're thinking, well, we, we're, we follow God. We've memorized the Torah. We're the ones who will be at the seat of honor. Oh no, it's Lazarus. It's the one that you would assume by their thinking would be the furthest from God. Verse 23. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. I want you to notice how the rich man goes unnamed. few ideas about why. Uh, First of all, it emphasizes, of course, that God knows intimately those he loves and shows mercy to and is received into his grace and glory. There's a kind of implied intimacy. The unnamed person points, I think, at the futility of living for oneself, right? That the rich man goes unnamed for eternity, It's kind of a a permanence of emptiness for those who seek to refuse God's ways. Because those who seek to make their name great while on earth will be forgotten for eternity. But those who humble themselves, who say, Jesus, I need you. He says, welcome home. You get the picture? It's our own arrogance that keeps us from the grace of god the greek here for the word hades that's the word it's also in hebrew it's sheol the idea of hades or sheol could refer to either death itself could just mean death or it could actually be a place that both the righteous and unrighteous go or it could be a place of the wicked dead Okay, there's a few different options of what it could mean. So some Jews at this time were taught that Hades was a place, an interim place, of torment before the final judgment of the wicked dead. Well, I want you to remember that we are hearing a parable, okay? It's a story that Jesus may not be teaching literally what the next life after this life is like, but we get some ideas, So I'm going to say that Jesus is not teaching a literal purgatory, uh, a holding place uh, that that holds the dead who are in purgatory, who, as some Christians believe, that you can kind of earn your way out of purgatory at some point. Okay, I don't think Jesus is teaching this concept of purgatory. But what is Jesus saying? He's giving us a reality check. Death is real. Judgment is real. Live today with the end in mind. You get the big picture? Live today with the end in mind. Now, verses 24 through 25. The rich man says, I am in agony in this fire. And then he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, I want you to notice, okay, again, in this story, don't assume that Jesus is saying, well, literally, after you die, you'll be able to communicate between heaven and hell. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. It's a, it's a parable, okay? But I want you to notice the rich man, the unnamed rich man, doesn't say he's sorry. <laughs> st- he's still not repentant. He doesn't even say he wants to go to heaven. What he does is he treats Lazarus like one of his servants. Send him down to me, <laughs> He's literally asking Lazarus to come to hell. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Even while he's suffering in this hell, he doesn't turn his heart towards God. Now, one pastor observed this. He says the rich man would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. You know, the interesting thing, the word for agony, it doesn't have to literally mean a physical agony. It could mean a grief could mean this internal torment. And I think that perhaps instead of literal flames that we can imagine the rich man's torment comes from his own unrepentant sin. Think about that. Think about without Jesus, we are left to deal with sin on our own. And after we die, we take our sin with us if we don't know Jesus. This man separated from the love of God, he's spiraling into his unclean sin because he never asked Jesus to take it. He stuck with it for eternity because he never asked and received the gift of grace. Now, we know that hell, whatever it is, is devoid of God's goodness, and the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, as those who are shut out from the presence of the Lord. There's this eternal separation from the goodness of God, That while on earth, with our sin, we have the opportunity to say yes to Jesus and he takes it away. Jesus takes on our sin and he gives us his righteousness. But if you die without receiving that gift, we are stuck to deal with sin on our own. That's the rich man. Send Lazarus to come, help me. Send Lazarus to hell. We're stuck with our own unrepentant sin. Now here's the other warning. The rich man says in verse 24, he calls Abraham Father Abraham. You know what that means? The rich man was religious. He was a churchgoer. He may be, he may be donated to, a, to one of our church projects. I mean this is dangerous stuff that you can spend your life going to church or being a good person and assume I'm with Jesus. Don't make that assumption. Those who are close to Jesus humble themselves. They they say, Jesus, I can't deal with my own sin without your cleansing blood. I don't know exactly how it works, but somehow on the cross, Jesus takes upon our sin and he gifts us his perfection and righteousness. And he says, It's my gift to you. All you have to do is say, Yes. It's unbelievable grace. This man is religious, but he never found true life. Don't be like this rich man. Religious, a good person, right? Trying to get enlightened without, without ever yielding your life to Jesus Christ. Today could be the day to say yes. You see, without being connected to Christ, the Bible says we perish. That's John three sixteen. That we are eternally separated from the love of God. That we are consumed by sin that blinded us into thinking that we could live life with me at the center. That I can live life without you, God. I'm living life better on my own. Or really, here's another step parallel to that. Maybe we're not like arrogantly you know, declaring, I don't need God at all. But you know what we do instead? We, we keep God as like a side dish. <laughs> you know? Like this part of our repertoire. You know, a little bit of yoga, you know, I'll go see the psychic, you know, whatever you're right. Kind of mix it all together, get the best of the best, making Jesus one part of your plan of enlightenment. That's still called self salvation. It's still you at the center. You need to decenter yourself or you will perish, John three sixteen says. Without being connected to Christ, we are stuck to deal with our sin on our own. You see, but friends, this life is not about you. You're not supposed to be at the center of your life. You place Jesus at the center. He in himself, he exudes all perfection. God himself, life itself, truth itself, eternal love, peace, joy is contained in him. He cannot be a side dish, though, to your, to your life. He wants to be and needs to be the center. See, you and I can be like the rich man, and we can think that we have lasting life by accumulating stuff, stuff like possessions, stuff like power, or the praise of people. And if you choose to live this life by that standard, then this is the standard you will be judged by. You get that? If you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, then the God you serve really is yourself. You're refusing the free gift of God to be cleansed from your sin. And for eternity, you'll be dealing with your sin. But Jesus says, no, I want to take it upon myself and give you my righteousness. See, here's the reality. For the Christian, this earth is the only hell we will ever know. Think about that. That we will leave behind all the brokenness and all the sadness when Jesus returns but for the non-Christian this earth is the only heaven they will ever know experiencing only a fraction of God's goodness because they settled for living without acknowledging a need for God's saving grace in Christ Jesus that's your choice see in that sense hell is getting exactly what we want eternal separation from God I'm going to give you three observations. There could be more. First of all, God expects a heart of love and mercy for the poor and lonely. That's that's the big context for this parable. I want you to notice that the rich man, he wasn't outwardly cruel to Lazarus, but he was indifferent. That's worthy of writing down. It was indifference. In this sense, hell is simply revealing the sin inside of those who refuse Jesus' grace. You see, indifference towards the needy is a sign of being far from God. And we all need to check our hearts. Indifference towards those who are in pain means you may not be welcoming God's ways into your life. You see, as redeemed People Generosity flows to others. Our hearts are full of God's love. Now let me pause for a second. I'm not saying that feeding hungry people gets you saved. Just this last week, I was on Facebook Live uh, with my kids because we went to Martha Henry's food pantry. We went just to say hi. We didn't even bring anything. We just went to say hi and to pray to pray for it. So we went there and Martha was there and we noticed that, that the pantry was kind of low on some things so we helped move some things into the slots I'm not saying that by me doing that, that I was like, hey, God, did you notice what I was doing? Because I want you to check it off the list. I'm rising up the ranks in heaven, right, Lord? No. <laughs> There's nothing to do with why we went or why you should help us out. There's no like earning like a better parking spot in heaven the more like I do for God, okay? No. We do it because God's love is poured into us. And guess what? It's fun. <laughs> It's fun to help people in the name of Jesus. It's a joy to pray. Oh, It's exciting to see people cross that line into faith in Christ. It's so fun to have Natalie and share about the, the Young Life homework house and how they're meeting physical and emotional educational needs that they might have the chance to share the gospel and to see a life transform. You see, isn't this fun? Redeemed people serving others is a natural thing that we do. Because saved people naturally serve people. Does that make sense? The love of God is in us. It's a natural thing that we do. So our neighbors should be able to look at our lives this week and instead of seeing indifference, see a people overflowing with mercy and peace and generosity and care for the needy. And that should be able to hear words of love and words of hope from us in Jesus. How could you do that this week? Secondly, what we learn from this parable, time is of the essence. In this parable, Abraham refuses the rich man's request, and he says in verse 26, a great chasm has been fixed. It cannot be crossed. What I think Jesus is implying in this is that death fixes us in the direction that we were heading in life either towards Jesus's eternal life that he's offering us or toward an eternal separation from God's love there's a chasm there's good news in this chasm though too for those who are saved for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ alone That also means that sin and death and sickness and hell can never cross over again into God's sphere or reign. Never again will he allow it. The great chasm has been fixed. Nothing will ever again, when we see God face to face, impede on this glorious, eternal life we have with God. For the redeemed... We are safe and secure for eternity. Thirdly, it's only by turning to Jesus that salvation comes. See, Jesus is warning the hearers in verses 29 through 31. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be, they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus is telling those religious authorities, these greedy people who are indifferent towards the poor, He was letting them know that when they see him rise from the dead, be warned that your heart would be cold when you see right in front of you the way and the truth and the life hanging on a cross. See, every human being will be at the mercy of Jesus the judge. I believe in the end, so you know, I believe we'll see a God who has been generous in calling many to be saved. And ultimately that we trust in the judgment of a wise, good, and merciful God. I believe that picture in Revelation 7. There's going to be a great multitude of saved people. People I'm seeing right here, people listening online right now. All be, we're going to be joyfully celebrating with this throng of people that the Bible says you can't even count. There's so many people welcomed into God's family. That's the God I believe in that the Scripture describes. A merciful God, a good God, a generous God. But the Bible doesn't allow us to ignore the reality of hell, the reality of being eternally separated from the goodness of God. But don't forget, the Bible presents Jesus Christ and what I just said as good news. And so should you. It is good news. So let me ask you a simple question. Do your neighbors see your life as a follower of Christ as good news? Do they experience you as good news? Do they see goodness in your life? Do they see indifference towards the poor? Indifference towards pain? Or do they see the goodness and the love and the mercy and the righteousness of God pour through you that compels them to say, like this young gal told Natalie, I want to see more of this Jesus, right? Show me more. Show me more. How can your family and your circle of influence see the goodness of God through your life and see it as good news? There were students from a Christian college that were going door to door, knocking, sharing, their faith evangelizing. They got to one door, opened up a frazzled mom carrying an infant in one arm and a vacuum with the other. She opened the door. The students could hear another child screaming in the background. They could see a pot of water boiling over on the stove and a pile of laundry in a corner and a kid scribbling on the wall. And then one of the students said, ma'am, we want to tell you about eternal life. And the mother replied, looking at them kind of tiredly, said, frankly, I don't think I could stand it. I wonder if we Christians do a poor job at pointing at the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ. The world is waiting to see good news through you. Will you show it? There's a lot of bad news that we wake up to each day, right? Can you be a glimpse of good news this week to someone? Could be with your words, could be with your actions, could be just showing up. You don't have to say a thing, maybe. That some small act of great love in the name of Jesus might penetrate the hearts and the minds of the people we encounter this week. You see, I know there's a lot of bad news that surrounds us. But the realities for those who follow Jesus is that we know Jesus will return one day and bring a new heavenly earth. He'll renew all things. And when he does that, we know in this new reality, this new heavenly city, that sickness will be undone and justice will reign and sin and death and COVID and separation and racism and food insecurity will be banished forever in Jesus. And we will see God face to face. See, this is good news, though all around us, I know some of us were experiencing bad news. There's a song called It Is Well. It's an old favorite hymn. It was written in 1873 by a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a prominent Chicago lawyer, but he tragically lost his four daughters when they drowned on a ship as it crashed into another vessel. Only his wife survived. From his family. And so while crossing the Atlantic, Horatio Spafford went to meet his grieving wife, and he wrote these lyrics on the very spot as his ship crossed where the other ship sank. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You know, when we are surrounded with so much pain and loss, and I know it's real for many of us sitting here and listening online, there's pain in your life. I know it can seem like God is impotent or immoral or imaginary or indifferent, but the reality is, friends, Jesus will return. And yes, there's this great separation that will occur, but for us as Christians, we have hope. We can sing words of hope. We can share acts of love. We can proclaim the gospel until Jesus returns because we know good news has arrived, and it can be well with our souls because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe you're here with us. We don't understand how it all works, but you promised that you'll be with us always until the very end of the age when you will return, when you will receive your own to yourself, when you will say to us, because you have filled us with your goodness, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll say, Jesus, when do we do any of these things you said that we've done well? And you'll point to all of these things you did in us and through us every time we shared the gospel with words or shared the gospel with kindness or shared the gospel with mercy or shared the gospel as we prayed. Well, thank you that we have hope because of you. Would you comfort those of us here right now? Some of us are struggling with some very painful things and we've lost some hope. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that they would be able to sing it is well with my soul. Not because we know everything has miraculously turned perfect, but because you know we know you are with us in the pain. Lord, I pray for anyone who has not surrendered their life to you, that maybe today is the day that they would cross over that threshold in faith into your loving arms of grace. Oh Lord, would you lead people even now to say yes to you, confessing our sins. We cannot save ourselves, Lord. Take on our sin. Fill us with your righteousness. Receive us into your family. Lord, thank you for that promise. You died for sinners just like me. Imperfect. Broken. Lord, thank you for your gift of grace. Thank you that you're coming back for us. And into in your name we pray. Amen.